Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 5th of June, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Derrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border, and Mark Anderson reporting from the United States. What a lovely sunny day we've got. Well, indeed. Uh, get a bit hotter in other parts of the world, though. And uh, so let's bring Tobias Alwood uh, on screen to begin with. Uh, and he was pushing this out on Friday or Saturday. Priorities for the West as Ukraine prepares to launch its major counteroffensive, more tanks, missiles and F-16s, a roadmap into NATO uh, for Ukraine and an improved uh, grain deal for Odessa. So he was at the Global Security Conference, Globesec, uh, in Bratislava over the weekend. And uh, he was very much pushing the idea that Russia is causing all our cost of living problems because of uh, the issue of grain getting out of Odessa. Uh, I'm not going to bore anybody with a little bit of video, but if you want to go and find that tweet, uh, you can watch his report from the Globsec Security Conference. Uh, and uh, well, he was on Radio 4 again this morning, pushing the same narrative. We've got to keep uh, funding, keep providing weapons and so on. The question is, do we have any weapons to provide? Uh, well, to find the answer, we need to go to Ben Wallace, who of course is in a contender, says the Washington Post, to run for NATO. Uh, as Secretary General, and he's now laying out his vision. Now, he's laying out this vision in uh, an interview that he did for the Washington Post. So let's just look at a couple of things that he had to say. Uh, here he is. The world is getting more dangerous, more insecure, more anxious, and the next Secretary General has to be able to deliver that funding. So he's talking about funding uh, for Ukraine and other uh, conflicts around the world, uh, to be able to deliver that funding and make sure that that is never taken off the boil. So we've got to keep the pressure on, keep the war going, uh, that's going to be his platform for uh, the Secretary Generalship of NATO. But if the world is getting more dangerous, more insecure, and more anxious, why is that happening? Is that happening because of the nasty Russians and the nasty Chinese? Or is that happening because uh, of the continuing funding of dodgy regimes around the planet by uh, Britain, the United States, and the EU? Well, I, I said it was the latter there. And of course, Ben Wallace and his political cronies are in it up to their necks, aren't they? So he continued, uh, NATO needs to make sure its members are match fit uh, and some members are fitter than others. Uh, what he's seen on the battleground is that if you punch Russian forces in the wrong place, they'll actually collapse. Uh, not sure that I've seen that, but okay, he may be living in different reality than everybody else. But he goes on to say, uh, you can send young men to die in their tens of thousands. He's talking about the Russians here. You can send young men to die in their tens of thousands, which is what they, what they do, the Russians. Uh, but you can't magic up tanks and weapon systems that they need. So he's claiming that the Russians don't have any tanks or weapon systems that they need, uh, except that well, we've seen reality, which is that we're running out. Yeah. Uh, so it's a bit, I mean, what what is he thinking? It's complete inversion. Mike. The truth has been completely inverted. The West, the US, UK, EU, NATO has run out of weapons. It's not running out, has run out of weapons. And the Russians have plenty of weapons, but uh, we tell the narrative as though the opposite was true. So more deceit just going through. It's quite incredible. Are we more from Tobias? Uh, more from Tobias. So let's bring him back on screen because uh, he's been boasting at the success of nudging. We've certainly been one of the leaders at nudging and encouraging others to have greater political courage, to look Russia in the eye, conscious of that escalatory ladder, 
and provide Ukra Ukraine what they needed. And of course, he's talking about military weapons and munici munitions. This was a quote he made uh, to NBC. I should have put that on the slide, but that's where it comes from. And then it went on in this article to say he's talking about Challenger tanks were not necessarily the system that Kiev required, but in stepping forward, it allowed others to then follow suit to follow suit. So Britain's so, led the way once again. So Britain has led the way, but think about what this man is talking about. He's talking about nudging. So the real message here is that the UK government can use applied psychology, nudging, on international partners to draw them deeper into the NATO proxy war against Russia. So, uh, David, I know you're, you're going to be getting into this a little bit more a bit later with an eye on the clock. It's not an accident, is it, that he's talking about nudging? It is not. I mean, the word nudging does come up later in the news today in context in the context of the information war and all of the work that's been done by multiple agencies of the British government to change how the British people think uh, and it would appear how people all over the world think, including within within governments. Yeah. Well, this um, Mirror article stood out for me, which I have to bring on screen, because uh, this is how he likes to sell himself in his local constituency. Bournemouth MP calls for safety review and end to rumours after two kids die in tragedy. This is two young teenagers who tragically uh, were pulled out to sea in a rip uh, riptide off the Bournemouth coast. And... Uh, a boy and a girl died in that incident. Um, so he's saying we've got to we've got to stop this happening in the future. And so if we put on screen the key question, what about the Ukrainian and Russian children being killed and maimed in his proxy war? And of course, sheer hypocrisy by this man. Uh, he doesn't really care. Uh, certainly not about the Russian and Ukrainian children, but in the local constituency, got to get the points in. And um, Politico here, apologies if we already had this up on UK column, I'm not sure, but I still think it stands. Top Russian official says British politicians now a legitimate military target. Medvedev argues UK is de facto leading an undeclared war against Russia. And they've got to be correct, Mike, on this. There's no question of it. And of course, we've now got unpleasant scenes on the battlefield. I'll just bring this in because we're not sure whether this is a Ukrainian um, uh, offensive that started to happen, but there's certainly attacks on many areas of the Ukrainian front lines. But as the Ukrainian vehicles and troops have come out from cover in the hedgerows and their defended positions, uh, they're simply being hit by uh, Russian artillery and guided weapons. So here we see the little black dots of the vehicles in the open fields, they're easily visible. And this is another shot, I think, taken at night through night vision equipment, uh, where if you watch the little video, you'll see an anti-tank guided missile appear from top of the screen. It's coming down now into center screen. And the black dots next to the uh, tree line again is all the Ukrainian vehicles which are moving forward. Relatively small numbers of troops, relatively small numbers of armoured vehicles, including infantry fighting vehicles. And of course, these are being hit by the Russian weapons the moment they become visible. So that will probably be another three, five men dead. Uh, but of course, this is the war that the UK wants. Um, meanwhile, we've got nonsense like this from the Telegraph. Putin no longer has the money 
or the kit to sustain a high-tech modern war. This is utter nonsense by Ambrose Evans Pritchard uh, because Russia at the moment is dominating the battlefield with uh, capable professional troops in extremely large numbers, unlimited artillery rounds, drones, hypersonic missiles, an intact and capable air force and eye-watering electronic warfare systems. This is not pumping up the Russians, this is simply reporting the facts, which the Telegraph appears unable to do. And if we look at this uh, video clip from military TV, uh, we've got a very um, concise, accurate report talking about what the Russians have been capable of doing on the battlefield with their electronic warfare systems. In the last 12 months, the U.S. and Ukraine collaborated to equip the Ukrainian Air Force's outdated fighter jets with advanced American weaponry. In September 20, 22, the Ukrainian Air Force caught the world's attention by disclosing that they were utilizing AGM-88 high-speed anti-radiation missiles produced in the U.S. These missiles were launched from MiG-29 and Su-27 fighters to target Russian air defense radars, allowing Ukrainian aircraft to operate with a degree of safety in a perilous battlefront. Last December, the U.S. government announced that it would supply Ukraine with the precision-guided weapons, known as Joint Direct Attack Munitions, or JDAM, which were intended to grant Ukraine a rapid and effortless means of carrying out precision-guided aerial bombing missions with the aid of GPS satellite signals. Politico reports that after four months have passed, the U.S. government is now of the opinion that the bombs are being impacted by Russian efforts to jam their guidance systems. It is a package that incorporates a GPS receiver, a computer processor, and controllable fins for bombs. This package is attached to low-cost, unguided bombs such as 500-pound Mark 82, 1,000-pound Mark 83, and 2,000-pound Mark 84 bombs, and the ultimate outcome is a system of precise guided weaponry. However, according to recent reports, the JDAM that were supplied to Ukraine and manufactured in the U.S. have not been successful in hitting their intended targets. So why is this happening? However, this accuracy is not guaranteed when using JDAM in Ukraine. According to classified U.S. government documents that have been leaked, the Ukrainian JDAM failing to hit their intended targets is mainly due to Russian electronic warfare tactics, particularly radio jamming. The same issue also seems to extend to guided rockets, including the GMLRS rockets launched by M142 HIMARS rocket trucks. So there we are. Uh, what is being said in that video clip is accurate, that uh, the uh, weapons, whether it's the anti-radiation missiles or it's the JDAM bombs or the HIMARS, are no longer working to full effectiveness due to Russian electronic warfare capability on the battlefield. And of course, the same problems we now know have extended to the Storm Shadow missiles. So utter nonsense from the uh, Telegraph. They need to do the research on it, but the reality on the battlefield is that all is not going well for the NATO wonder weapons. And Mark, perhaps we could bring you in at this stage because you're seeing some interesting stuff going on in the background uh, around NATO and uh, people moving in and out of view. Uh, yes, uh, good day, guys. Carl Bill, 
our good friend, of course, European Council on Foreign Relations, Bilderberg, Trilateral Commission, all the pips, right? Well, he, um, amid all the things you guys are talking about and reporting today, he came on this past weekend, PBS, the equivalent of our BBC, on a new show called Amanpour and Company. And this is, of course, Carl Bill. Uh, we were looking at him there a minute ago. And there's Amanpour and Company uh, run by Christiane M. Amanpour, a British-Iranian journalist. And the guy to the far left is a well-known U.S. establishmentarian, Walter Isaacson. Uh, he's been in the U.S. Uh, power structure for a long, long time. And uh, what did Carl Bill have to say? Let's move forward a little bit from there. Uh, right as all this is going on, uh, Fairly recently, May 17, he wrote an article called The High Stakes of NATO's Vilnius Summit. And this is m largely what he spoke of much more recently, just this past weekend on PBS. And um, uh, what it mentions here is uh, uh, when NATO leaders gather in Lithuania in July, that's coming up, they will return to a question that has haunted the alliance ever since its ill-fated Bucharest summit in 08. While articulating a process for Ukrainian accession is not the most urgent matter, doing so to get Ukraine into NATO has become unavoidable, Mr. Bill wrote. And moving on from there, uh, this is uh, just some basics here. Notice what I marked in the top paragraph. Um, until Putin's illegal annexation of Crimea in 2014, Ukraine maintained a policy of neutrality vis-a-vis -vis Russia and NATO. Well, of course it did, because uh, before 2014 and into the early part of 2014, Ukraine had a Russian leader, Yanukovych, and he was overthrown by the West, by that um, EU-NATO-aligned uh, Western thing, uh, Western uh, coup involving Victoria Nuland, a U.S. State Department official. So the annexation of Crimea, quote-unquote, came only after that happened. And uh, we can go from there. We can go a little further. Um, here we have also what Mr. Bill wrote. It remains unlikely that two-thirds of U.S. senators are prepared to ratify NATO membership for Ukraine in the run-up to the 2024 presidential election. The problem is not only that some Republicans oppose a blank check for Ukraine, it's also that Joe Biden's administration and congressional Democrats will not want to hand Donald Trump a useful issue with which to support his America first reelection bid, because they feel uh, Trump will say, our country, the US has needs, those needs come first, why are we giving all this money and weaponry to Ukraine? That's the fear among the globalists. And uh, what it also mentions there briefly, while the prospect of the US deploying troops to the frontline battlefield of Bakhmut is a long way off, that's an interesting statement, Maintaining a strong, consistent flow of military and financial support to Ukraine is urgent and fully achievable as long as there is political will for it. In the months ahead, concrete support will be far more useful to Ukraine than mere commitments on paper, Mr. Bill wrote. So this is giving a little bit of insight into, you might say, the Bilderberg crowd's view on this. Mr. Bill, Mr. Bill, Carl Bill, the former prime minister of Sweden, is hardwired into that uh, globalist club, you might say. In the end, he concluded, wordsmiths will have to produce a solution that provides a clear path to Ukrainian membership, even if it falls short of immediate accession. Unlike in 08, 
there can be no longer any doubt that membership will come one day. Ukraine's security is key to European stability, and that will remain the case for decades. And get this part, resisting aggression and safeguarding Europe are the reasons why NATO was created in the first place. At stake in Vilnius is not just Ukraine's future, but also that of the alliance. So Mr. Bill is saying the stakes are that high for uh, the Vilnius summit coming up in July. Very interesting. And the timing of it all, given what you guys are reporting today. And this is a little bit we got about Project Syndicate. Uh, we only, we not only talk about the, the message, we talk about the means of delivering the message. And Mr. Bilt is um, among many elitists and those of that ilk that write for Project Syndicate. You might say Project Syndicate is to the elite what Substack is to more of the average person. That would be a fair comparison. It mentions here uh, their uh, Project Syndicate's uh, active in 156 countries. We work with 508 media outlets. More than half of these outlets receive our commentaries at subsidized rates. And 66 uh, of our commentaries have, have appeared, excuse me, our, our commentaries have appeared in 66 languages. So that's a little bit of an idea of that medium. And contributors, um, the contributors are prominent politicians. These are the writers, policymakers, scholars, business leaders, civic activists from six continents. Nobel laureates, heads of state, uh, 1,271 uh, columns distributed in 2022 uh, to, uh, by 688 contributors who did that in 156 countries. And there were 18,350 commentaries uh, published, um, that many commentaries published in all. And the next one is even more revealing, actually, the most revealing, Project Syndicate's Public Service Commission has received support from Open Society, which is George Soros, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, MasterCard, the European Climate Foundation, the European Investment Bank, oh, combing through it a bit, um, the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, the Google Digital News Service Initiative, and the World Bank Group, among others. So that gives you an idea of uh, the medium, the means of communication that Carl Bildt and other elitists through Project Syndicate are using. And the last thing I'll mention on this, it's certainly worth a, a passing note, is that Gordon Brown, the former prime minister of the UK, is on the advisory board, among some other names that are somewhat familiar, maybe not household names, maybe uh, you gentlemen would know more about these other guys on the advisory board, the other people. But um, that, that gives you an idea of what's going on, you might say, from the Bilderberg trilateral uh, perspective and all this. And it seems to comport pretty much with what you're reporting this morning. Okay, Mark, thank, thank you very much for that. And uh, the report about uh, July and the urgency of getting the discussion there about Ukraine would make sense as to why there's been so much pressure from the West, the US and the West for the um, Ukrainian offensive, no matter what the casualties. I'll just pop this image on right. the screen. Uh, apologies there, Mark. 
We just put this image on screen. We uh, this was circulating over the the weekend. What a photograph! This man turned his people into cannon fodder and doomed his entire nation for the benefit of U.S. oligarchs. Well, recruited, groomed, and enabled certainly by the U.S. and the U.K. But of course, we now know regime change in Russia uh, at any cost to Ukraine is the real agenda. And this was another meme which I think uh, said a lot. We got Schultz here saying, I sent tanks to Ukraine, what will happen next? And there is a certain leader looking at uh, the red flag flying over the Reichstag. Uh, But of course, nobody's concerned about this and apparently not Tobias Elwood. Indeed. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org uh, where you can become a member uh, and uh, your support very much needed and appreciated. Uh, you can pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share material you find on the various platforms and uh, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Now, go ahead. Okay, so what's this one? Well, this was an, another meme, and of course, it's uh, picking on Zelensky, but we've got the great and good gathered around him. I thought it was a particularly uh, fine one. You've got to pick a pocket or two in order to get uh, by. Uh, but over the top of it, I haven't got time to go all the way through, but this was a UK uh, column viewer who was pointing out the sheer horror of the weapons going into Ukraine and the damage that it was doing. And of course, they're mentioning uh, all the better for BlackRock, Goldman Sachs and other EU, USA and UK financiers to swoop in with massive loans at exorbitant rates. And I thought this is just a nice little segue to uh, David, some of David's material a little bit later in the news. Yes, David, let's move on to the Infowar. And I've been covering this quite a lot over the last few years, David, uh, and the various government agencies involved in this rapid response unit, uh, the disinformation unit in the cabinet office, a whole host of different organizations. But let's bring this up to date. Yes, I mean, we've been covering it. We've been living it, Mike. I mean, we've been involved in the information war and uh, we've been part of the dissident voices against the, the COVID lockdown and the COVID policy, and we've suffered as a result. The Telegraph here, uh, branding this as an exclusive, um, uh, report that Minister Ministers had a chilling secret unit to curb lockdown dissent. Now, this is referring to the counter disinformation unit you mentioned just a moment ago, Mike. He said this, they say this was set up to tackle supposed domestic threats. That would be you and Brian, Mike. Uh, and it was used to target those critical of lockdown and questioning mass vaccination of children. I would just point out very briefly at this point that um, there is now not the slightest suggestion, there's no, there's no intellectual argument to, to be made in favour of lockdown. It's completely, uh, it's been completely shown to be harmful and uh, without any foundation. And the, the, even the most rudimentary understanding of statistics would have call, called any thinking person to question the mass vaccination of children. So why this was ever, count, ever countering these ideas is beyond... Um, uh, it's beyond any rational explanation. Sorry, um, David, can I just interrupt for a second? Can I just interrupt for a second? So they're claiming that as an exclusive? Yes. Well, it's only an exclusive if nobody's been watching the UK column for the last two years. But anyway, OK, <laughs> keep going with it. Yeah. So the exclusive continues. Uh, there's a growing suspicion that social media firms use technology to stop posts being circulated after being flagged by the CDU. Again, this is not news to us, but it's news to the Telegraph and possibly most of the country. Um, FOI uh, requests, which is re- 
report was based on showed that the activities of prominent critics of government COVID policies were being secretly monitored. And they've got three examples here. Uh, Carl Hennigan, uh, Molly Kingsley, and Andrea de Fug uh, Figueredo. Radio, yeah. um, uh, so these people were monitored, silenced, and and many, many more. It does um, make me wonder exactly what on what is sitting in the files of the CDU on the UK column. We might see if we can find out. That would be interesting. Uh, looking into this a little bit in a little bit more depth. Uh, we go back to January 22 and a question on the disinformation unit by Lucy Powell of Labour. Um, she asked um, uh, whether the counter disinformation unit on COVID-19 is operating as of the 6th of January 2022 and how many staff are working. And then she asked some further questions about the makeup of the staff. She didn't get a very full reply. Um, she, the, the, uh, Chris Phillip, um, uh, provided the answer, and he said the counter disinformation unit was established on the 5th of March 2020, uh, bringing together cross government monitoring and analysis capabilities. As of the 7th of January 2022, it is still fully operational. And he goes on to talk about how its size has increased um, and requirements are continuously reviewed to ensure appropriate levels, levels of resourcing, including surge capacity as needed. That sounds awful like the description of 77th Brigade. I wonder if there's a link there. Now, I know what you're thinking, Mike. These people are monitoring us. They're closing people down. They're silencing dissent. This is not good, but it's okay because um, they've put out a, a note, a notice uh, on the GDPR to tell, you, tell us all what they're doing with our data. Don't laugh. Uh, this was published in March uh, 2023. Um, the the uh, also say, due to the recent machinery of government, brackets, MOG, don't you just love the language, changes, the counter-disinformation unit is in the process of transitioning, isn't everybody, from the Department of D Digital Culture, Media and Sport to the Department of Science, Innovation and Technology. So if you ever wondered if uh, science is now just basically witchcraft, that's, uh, that's a clue. And they go on to explain this Privacy notices to explain how the counter disinformation unit collects and processes your personal data, which we, when we have not obtained personal data directly from you, it is provided to meet our obligations under Article 14 of GDPR. So nice of them. Now, um, going on to taking a, a slightly more uh, an overview of what the government's doing, uh, we're referring here to a, a paper by. Carnegie UK, now um, characterising itself as being interested in collective well-being, maybe more on that in extra time. But they're talking about uh, what the government's doing, and they say, well, at this point when they wrote this uh, article, there were three main branches, the counter-disinformation unit, which we've just um, been talking about, um, looking at mostly COVID issues and also more recently Russia-Ukraine. There's the government information cell, which is a foreign office based um, cell looking at war fighting and national security issues, and they think, talking about mostly Russia and Ukraine, and there was the Rapid Response Unit, which is a cabinet office based, and about messaging from the government. Now, Carnegie UK go on to say, these teams nudge service providers in different ways. There's that word again. Um, and they, 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 they've got concerns. They say, we have no record of their effectiveness. The groups do not publish 
their logs of action to any external authority for oversight of the things they are raising with companies using the privileged authority of Her Majesty's government. This very direct state interference in the media gives rise to concerns. Oh, yes, it does. Um, back to Hansard and questions in the House, a friend of the UK columns, Sir Christopher Chope, um, he asked um, when the Rapid Response Unit was disbanded and what happened to the information it collected. Uh, Alex Burgert uh, replied, uh, the Rapid Response Unit was created in 2018 and disbanded in August 2022. Um, on disband disbandment, the information collected was archived and will be retained in line with the Cabinet Office information retention policy. So, there we go. But uh, this exchange goes on. Christopher Chope come back, came back and said, but why has my honourable friend refused to admit in answer to parliamentary questions that the Rapid Response Unit collected and stored information on sitting MPs? Um, Alistair Berger replied, my friend is welcome to come and have a, I would put in here the implied word private, uh, meeting with me and officials in the Cabinet Office to discuss any concerns he has about the Rapid Response Unit. Uh, as my honourable friend's names appeared in newspaper articles in connection with various stories, oh yes, it is natural that it would have been picked up by those monitoring services. So they're trying to play it down. The speaker then gets involved. And the speaker says, I do have concerns about what has been mentioned. If there are dossiers on MPs, we need to know. A government department holding records on, on MPs may be fine, but may not be. So I, I do have great worries, he says. Alex Burkett says, there is nothing untoward about this, I can assure you. And the speaker says, well, we will certainly find out at some point. So uh, the speaker didn't seem entirely convinced. Gentlemen, are you? Well, I'm not convinced at all, except I am convinced of the fact we've now got a government which spies on its own citizens. And as we'll see maybe a little bit later, a government that's out of control. Um, but uh, where is this information? And we should... Perhaps also remember that, of course, dossiers on MPs, that sort of data has been held for years by the whips offices because that's how they control the politicians and many would say blackmail them. So perhaps the stone is beginning to be lifted and it'd be interested to see where the investigation goes. Now, moving on to uh, the Foreign Office um, part of this, particularly with regards to Russia and Ukraine. Here we have a, 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 some information from the Government Communication Service. Um, Simon Bow, the um, uh, chief executive of the UK Government Communication Service. Um, and he's talking, he actually calls it the information war. Right? He says, to understand the vital role communication, communications professionals have to play in this war, it is necessary to understand Russia's military doctrine. For Russia, communications is not an adjunct to war information as a weapon of war. Now, I would point out that that was true of the Soviets. Whether it's true of the Russians is another matter. And also, um, it's surely true of the West. Um, is this the Iron Law of Woke projection uh, no, working well, it's, its way it's, through again? It's, it's, can... uh, sorry, David, it's absolutely true of the West. If we think back to the, the comments by Nick Carter or by his uh, colleague, chief of the... Of the, uh, uh, of the well, anyway, I can't remember. But anyway, talking about, you know, war and peace no longer being binary systems about there being a, a state of perpetual yeah. war and absolutely information was was central to that so so again we've got a government that projects onto its enemy what it's doing itself yeah 
Yeah, and he, and he doubles down on this. He says, Russia's method is to undermine the cohesion of its enemies, to deliberately sow division, to polarise societies, to make it harder to respond to its aggression and harder to maintain alliances. Cyber attacks, disinformation, interfering with free elections are all part of full spectrum, all domain approach to war. This is projection. This is what the West have been doing. And he then he finishes up, um, alongside the work in the Ukraine, the government communication service has been working with countries in Central and Eastern Europe to take action against disinformation. Uh, and they've trained more than 500 communicators in 20 countries using our Resist to Counter Disinformation Toolkit. This is available online. There's a little uh, screenshot of the, the cover. So if you want to uh, find out what they're doing, you can look it up there. Uh, and to finish on a somewhat humorous note in this section, Andrew Neil, Andrew Neil, goodness me, Andrew Neil reported on Twitter, cracking telegraph scoop. He obviously doesn't watch the UK column. Cracking telegraph scoop. Secretive government unit worked with social media companies to curtail discussion of controversial lockdown policies during pandemic. Counter disinformation unit set up by ministers to target critics of lockdown and mass vaccination of children. Right, so Sargon of Akkad tweeted back at him, but you cheered it on, and he and he's got a a, a, a snapshot from an Andrew Neil for the Daily Mail December twenty one article entitled "It's time to punish, punish Britain's five million vaccine refuseniks. They put us all at risk of more restrictions," says Andrew Neil. So why shouldn't we curb some of their freedoms? Now, how do you think, gentlemen, Andrew Neil responded to his own hypocrisy being shown? Did he apologise? Did he say to the UK British public, I was so wrong about this, I, I, I humbly beg your forgiveness? Uh, no. What he did is he blocked Carl Benjamin on Twitter. So there we go. Um, full uh, clarity and communication there from Andrew Neil. Okay, I wouldn't have expected anything else, actually, but there you go. Yeah, thank you for that, David. Well, uh, we've often asked the question, who actually is governing UK? We've talked about a government of occupation many times. I believe we've used the uh, descriptor of a cabal. Uh, but uh, a couple of days ago, I mentioned that interesting things were happening inside the Conservatives. And there appeared to be two, like, parties within a party appearing, um, uh, both different objectives. But let's look at this first one, Conservative Democratic Organisation. Now, my mind says that only a few years ago, if you dared to put the national flag on your uh, website, you would have been branded far right and extremist. But this has got the, uh, uh, the flag here in such detail, we can see the stitching on the material. Uh, we've got uh, Democracy Matters, join the thousands of Conservatives fighting every day to promote a Democratic Party. Uh, we've got a quote apparently from Sir Winston Churchill, to improve is to change, so to be perfect is to change often. I'd certainly challenge that as a valid, useful quote, but uh, let's bring in a few faces. And uh, who better than the Right Honourable Priti Patel? She says, grassroots are at the heart and soul of our party. We work tirelessly to campaign for Conservative votes, etc., etc. Um, but basically, we need to get more 
members committed and doing things that will make us stronger, more successful in government and boost our membership numbers. Notice that it's the Tories, so they're already saying we want your money uh, because uh, many people are very poor in the Conservative Party. Uh, but if we look at a bit of the detail, this is apparently the challenges that uh, are, are now faced inside the party. Uh, membership is 172-odd thousand. Um, 10 to 15% are activists, giving them about 26,000 useful people. But if you want to run a proper general election campaign, you need 50,000 activists. So there's definitely fear here about an impending election. Um, then at the last general election, the party had 500,000 members, and that's been eff effectively declining, and uh, successive chairmen have done nothing about it. Um, We've got the Lord Feldman report here that constituency associations had fewer than 100 members. So everything that's happening here is about shrinking Tories. And you can almost smell the fear uh, hidden amongst the gloss of this website. So they go on to talk about research showing that people join political parties, apparently for social re reasons and in order to participate in decision-making. A uh, huge gap between the views of the Parliamentary Party and the Voluntary Party. 60% of Tory MPs were in favour of remaining in Europe, European Union, whereas 70% of members wish to leave. That's quite an interesting little statistic. Um, and then it goes on to say that... Um, uh, people have been excluded, even though the members uh, wanted them. So we're going to label this no participation and no power inside the party. Um, number seven, party members feel too, sorry, party members feel too that a large part of the parliamentary party no longer supports the traditional party values, small state, low taxation, strong defence, etc. And um, they're also complaining here that so the Conservative campaign HQ, CCHQ, has been stealing power. So we've got no traditional values left and CCHQ is on a power grab. Now, what they then do is say that they need to reform the party. I'm not going to dwell on this because there's quite a lot of detail here, but we've got change the constitution of the party. The party constitution should be capable of only being changed by a motion at the annual general meeting. Uh, reform three, constituency associations should have the right to determine who their conservative parliamentary candidate is. A lot of this sounds perfectly reasonable to me. Notice in the small print, it says CCHQ would still have an advisory role, but they're clearly worried about the power of that. Reform four, the spring conference should be a policy conference where ministers would listen to members. Uh, five, um, the conference controlled by a subcommittee, and then the rules for election of the party leader incorporated within the main body of the constitution. You would think that was already there, but apparently not. And uh, reform seven, a constitution commission should be immediately set up to propose changes to the party constitution. So I'm just going to strap a line in here. If the Conservative Party has not been democratic to date, what has it been? Dictatorship, fiefdom, a cabal, a criminal conspiracy? What's emerging from this, and perhaps I'll look to you, David, is that we're now starting to see what has been operating at the heart of the Tory party. But many of the members have said, essentially, this party is run by just six people. 
and they're unaccountable. Yes, and this is the same with many parties. I mean, the SNP are exactly the same. It's not it's probably not as many as six. Right? The, 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 I, I don't imagine the Labour Party is very much different. This is one of the, one of the issues with the system we have of party-based representative democracy. You end up with a very small cabal running the parties and therefore running the country. And you don't get a real choice and you don't get any access to honest debate or the truth. Indeed. Well, we can rest assured because if we look at the Constitutional Working Party group, there are a number of names. Uh, I just was interested in one, Lord Peter Criddis of Shoreditch, who's the president, um, allegedly the richest man in the city of London with a little over a billion pounds in his pocket. So that all seems to be in safe hands. And I'll just highlight this um, Express article. Uh, we've mentioned the case to do with the diplomat uh, where 14 police kicked in his door. But the headline cleverly invokes terror gag over high court case where he's been named as defendant. Um, so let's get this in, in, in text we can see. You can control the court system so you can gag it even though you're a defendant. And remember what we've just described happening inside the Tory party. Unbelievably dangerous in my opinion. Okay, let's move on to economic issues now. And uh, well, here is a new call for universal basic income in the UK, or at least for a pilot scheme. Uh, so this is a think tank called Autonomy. They call themselves an independent progressive research organization that focuses on tackling climate change, the future of work and economic planning. Uh, they say we have provided economic analyses, advanced data analytics, policy proposals and on the ground solutions which, with which to confront the changing reality of our economy and society today. Our aim is to pursue ecological future proofing, real freedom, uh, equality and human flourishing. So there you go. And they want to start a uh, pilot scheme in a part of London, uh, giving, I think, something in the region of uh, £1,600 a month uh, free to people. Now, I'm just going to make the point that this, of course, is part and parcel of the Green New Deal. And if we look uh, at the way universal basic income has been discussed over the last few years, this is the, con con uh, the conversation. Green New Deal, universal basic income could make green transition feasible. Uh, we've got, sorry, we've got Occupy, Green New Deal 20, just a green future needs, a just green future needs universal basic income. Uh, here we've got the Green Party announcing a plan for fully costed universal basic income for everybody. Uh, here's a bright green website, five reasons why a Green New Deal and universal basic income go hand in hand. Uh, here's Salon, why environmentalists should embrace universal basic income. Uh, and uh, well, our old friends at the World Economic Forum, universal basic income is the answer to the inequalities exposed by COVID-19. Um, so, of course, just so that everybody completely understands, this is the idea that uh, everybody, uh, no matter what their current income is, instead of getting some kind of means-tested benefit, uh, would in fact be given a basic income uh, from uh, on which to uh, live their lives. But the question is, um, first of all, what does that do to people's motivation to go to work? And second of all, what uh, obligations does that place on someone if your only source of income or your main source of income uh, is, the, is the government, whether it be the British government or whatever. But let's see where this ends, because uh, here is uh, UNESCO, their inclusive policy lab, and they want to move the debate away from universal basic income to universal basic services. So instead of being given a, a, a pot of money each month, 
they say that universal basic uh, services is an alternative case to UBI. Under UBS, the provision of free public services must be gone, go beyond health or education to cover other basic necessities, uh, e.g. housing, care, transport, information, and nutrition. And David, I would ask, uh, what kind of world would we live in uh, if we were reliant on government to provide us with housing, care, transport, information, and nutrition? Uh, and well, I'll leave it there. What kind of world would we live in? Maoist. Okay, uh, thank you for that. And I'll just remind everybody, by the way, that uh, of course, following on from this or part of the same policy, perhaps, uh, is uh, central bank digital currency. Uh, Wednesday this week, the 7th, is the closing date for the UK government's consultation on central bank digital currency. We'll put the link to the, consult the consultation under the, uh, in the show notes on the UK column website, as usual. Um, but we would uh, like to remind everybody just two days, if you haven't taken part in that, to get involved. So uh, let's move on with economic issues and move to the United States, David, and, uh, well, the debt ceiling. Well, uh, rejoice, apparently, according to CBS News, Biden signs a debt ceiling bill that pulls the US back from the brink of an unprecedented default. That's unprecedented since the last one in 1971. Anyway, um, I, I love this next headline. It's, this is the New York Times doing what the New York Times does, which is trying to mislead its readers. The headline is all about cuts. New details in debt limit deal where $136 billion of cuts will come from. But later on in the article, they admit the truth. The centerpiece of the agreement remains a two-year suspension of the debt ceiling, um, which caps the total amount of money the government is allowed to borrow. Uh, su suspending that cap, which is now set at 31 point, well, set at $31.4 trillion, will allow the government to keep borrowing money and pay its bills on time, as long as Congress passes the agreement before 5th of June. Blah, blah, blah. So there is no debt ceiling. The debt ceiling's been scrapped, albeit it's only, it's only temporary, right? You know, it's a temporary government measure, so we, we all know what that means. Uh, so there's now no limit on United States government spending. They've agreed to a couple of short-term cuts and a couple of projects, but basically all restraint is removed and they can, they can borrow as much as they can get their hands on. Um, hence, um, this little um, uh, cartoon from Banks, uh, which comments that what used to be the debt ceiling is now the floor. And you know it's getting interesting when the Financial Times starts using memes to communicate. So here we've got one here where the people sitting on the beach are the money markets and the enormous tsunami that's coming towards them. That's T-bill issuance. Now, what they mean by that is... Uh, the, the United States government has not been borrowing now for several months and they've been taking money from pension funds and any, anything else that's got some liquidity in it to, to stave off the date of the default. They've now got to return that money. They've got to borrow rapidly to fill in the gap. So Financial Times reports on it here. Um, since they hit the debt ceiling, the United States government's been drawing down money held in Treasury General account with the Fed. As a result, the balance has dropped from $700 billion to $50 billion. Quickly rebuilding that buffer will boost the Treasury bill issuance to over $730 billion over the next three months and $1.25 trillion over the rest of this year, according to Morgan Stanley. So there's huge amounts of American government debt going to be issued. Now, one of the problems that's going to do is going to drive up interest rates. This will hit a lot of people, 
Most significantly, though, it will hit the banks because they're competing against the money market funds for, um, for deposits, for cash. Now, um, we have here a graph that shows what's happened to deposits in American commercial banks. And you'll see that after going basically linear for the whole of this um, um, and then having craziness take over in 2020 with the COVID nonsense and then more increases, they've actually lost about a trillion dollars in deposits in the last six months, which is quite a lot of money. And there's going to be further pressure on the banks because of outflows of money. Now, that's not the only pressure on the banks. Again, from the FT, US banks prepare for losses in the rush uh, for commercial property exit. So one of the uh, in a unadvertent, unintended consequences of COVID is that people don't travel into the office anymore or they don't travel nearly as much. And you don't need as much office space. You don't need as many meeting rooms and all of this sort of stuff because people are having Teams meetings and Zoom meetings and they're not actually moving about. So transport's been hit and uh, office property's been hit and people aren't going to the shops either for the same reason. So the whole commercial property sector has been really hammered. So PacWest Bank in America uh, last month sold 2.6 billion of construction loans at a loss to get out of that market sector. And this is happening more and more. So the commercial real estate is the next uh, shoe to drop on the American banking system. This is going to happen along, along with huge outflows of money and further increases in interest rates. And it's going to be a perfect storm for the United States banking sector. So more trouble ahead there, I would, I would expect. Um, and back here in Britain, uh, Bank of England looks to broaden reform of the deposit guarantee scheme. So they're talking about how they actually handle the guarantee scheme that's meant to save depositors if banks go down because there was a lot of complaints that the Americans would be much more generous than the Bank of England. So they're now looking um, to um, advance capital to a failed bank because that, that'll go well. So it would remain solvent until it was sold or shut. This would give the Bank of England comfort to lend money to the bank. Okay, so it would have liquidity to honour withdrawals from depositors, one of the people added, reducing the chances of a bank run. I would say making the bank run just vast because you're fueling the bank run by providing the liquidity to allow it to happen. But um, they seem to think that's a good idea. Uh, I'm not so sure. Mike. Well, I'll, I'll respond on that one, Dave. What, what comes to my mind is that if you were a poor soul trader and you were caught trading whilst insolvent, they're going to come down on you like a ton of bricks for a criminal offence. But we've got these people magicking money out of nothing, vast sums which are inflating, inflating. And then when it all starts to go wrong, we are protecting them. These people should be brought in front of courts. We should get the lid off this system. Now, the next item I've got for you here is strange. We, we've talked a lot and, and on the show, in the news, in various interviews, about the creeping version of fascism we're now dealing with. And one of the aspects of fascism is a very close relationship between government and uh, uh, commerce, where government controls what is um, nominally held in private hands. But as long as you do what the government says, you're rewarded with essentially unfair trading advantages and vast profits. So it's a very insidious system. This takes us to BlackRock. Uh, we have here James Lindsay, friend of the UK column, uh, tweeting out a Bloomberg article in Think We Trust. 
BlackRock is now the fourth branch of government. When the Fed looked for bond buying help in a crisis, it turned to the giant money manager. Uh, do you have any comments on that before we hear a little bit from Larry Fink, chief executive of BlackRock? Well, what, what springs to mind immediately, of course, is BlackRock is, is hovering, or, well, not hovering, it's been in the country, eyeing up what it can buy, scoop up of Ukrainian strategic infrastructure. So absolutely, this is an arm of government. There's no question of it. I think Mark's got a comment he'd like to make. Yeah, yeah at the recent uh, Red Pill conference this back in July in Indianapolis, uh, Dr. David Martin talked about not just Big Pharma and the origins of Big Pharma, but State Street and BlackRock as the real muscle in the economy and that they were really running the whole show in conjunction with the central banks and constitute a government onto themselves. So this amplifies that. Okay, well, if, if, we're, if we're seeing this is now part of government, let's see where it's taking us. Uh, let's hear from uh, Chief Executive Blacklock, Larry Fink. You now make a point of, that's, that's an investment criteria for you. Well, behaviors are gonna have to change, and this is one thing we're, gonna, we're asking companies. Uh, you have to force behaviors, and at BlackRock, we are forcing behaviors. 54% uh, of the incoming class are women. We, we added four more points in terms of diverse uh, employment this year. And it, if it, it, you know, what we are doing internally is, if you don't achieve these levels of impact, it, your compensation could be impacted, okay? We're doing the same thing. And so it's just, it, you have to force behaviors. And if you don't force behaviors, whether it's gender or race, or just any way you want to say the composition of your team, you're going to be impacted. And that's not just not recruiting. It is development, as Ken said. And ultimately, it's still going to take time, but I am just as much shocked as Ken is that we have not seen more opportunities. And we're going to have to force change. So there you have, it's all about force, right? See that whole thing where capitalism's about voluntary contract? No, 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 forget that. We're going to, we're going to force, we're going to change behaviours. It's, it's beyond nudging. It's just out and out coercion. And, and what's, the, what's the agenda? Well, it's diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, it's uh, environmental and social governance. It's all of the cultural Marxist pushes to change society. These are being pushed by by commercial concerns, or allegedly commercial concerns, but trying to spot where this stops and the government starts is becoming increasingly difficult. Now, this takes us to pensions. Now, one of our sort of longer term predictions is sooner or later they'll come for the pensions. And who's first out of the blocks? It's our man, Tony Blair, right? You've got to, you've got to give him credit. So the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change has issued a report called Investing in the Future, Boosting Savings and Prosperity for the UK. And they say the UK's pension savings system is broken and long overdue for sweeping change. Now, there's a couple of things. This, this is a, 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 a report that's actually well worth reading because they do have some quite interesting stuff in it, although the direction of travel is concerning. So they're, they're analysing the situation. So they've seen that over the past 20 years, it's relatively recent, 
there's been an, an abandonment of investment in the domestic economy by the United Kingdom pension funds. I wasn't really fully aware as to how bad that was. Um, almost total liquidation of the holdings in UK equities. This has depressed uh, UK companies' valuations, made them buy up from abroad, and then promoted foreign ownership of British companies. So the problem they're describing is quite real. But the solution is, well, interesting. So they're saying that they're going to take the existing pension protection fund um, and have this become the first super fund, GB Savings One, it's going to be called. So instead of having to fail in order to transfer the pension fund to the, to the PPF, sponsors of the smallest 4,500 UK-defined benefits pension schemes will be offered the voluntary option, uh, maybe with a bit of coercion, voluntary option, of transferring to this mega fund. Um, so Tony here, and apologies for the photograph, I, I put this in, frankly, because it annoys me. And, and if it, I'm reading a report from the Tony Blair Institute, I think you should all be annoyed as well. Um, the, so there's Tony's, Tony's nice um, publicity shot there, but the, the text reads, um, the um, model will be replicated and rolled out throughout the UK, um, gathering non for um, non not for profit entities that would progressively absorb the United Kingdom's twenty seven thousand defined uh, defined contribution pension funds. Through this approach, the UK would, in three to five years, so it's really immediate, uh, emerge with half a dozen global scale, professionally managed, long time horizon diversified funds with three hundred to four hundred billion pounds apiece. So we're taking 27,000 little pension funds and we're rolling them in to six. Now, one of the things about that is if we've got such a concentration of power and wealth, there'll be only six chief executives to deal with. Tony will know them all. Tony will have taken them all out for dinner. And you can be absolutely sure that all six will be producing, will be um, um, promoting diversity and inclusion and equity and uh, economic and social governance and all the rest of it, because otherwise they wouldn't, they wouldn't be invited to play. Um, so they've then uh, gone in and said this, this, the super funds would help restore the lost vitality of British industry, allegedly, by deploying long-term equity to invest in the UK's economic future, creativity and blah, blah, blah. They don't say why they would choose to do this and not simply put the money abroad. Uh, I'm, I'm not clear on what just scale will do for them here. Um, there's now a, there's then a, an interesting comparison as to how Britain's doing today compared to just 20 years ago. So pension assets invested in UK equities 20 years ago was over half, and now it's 4%. Um, and percent invested in bonds is, was 15%, is now 60%. So there's been a huge change in... Uh, where the, the pension funds are investing the money. And it's out of companies and it's into bonds. Um, we see here uh, a graph of what happened to the pension companies as the bond price went up, as, as guilt price went up. Um, so basically it's titled, as interest rates rose, the pension portfolios were exposed as a concentrated leverage bet on continuously low rates. So we had... Um, interest rates going up from basically nothing to about 4%, and the value of the pension funds in the UK dropped 400 billion as a result. So that's pretty spectacular. Um, 
the next graph shows that uh, UK stock market is still lower than what it was in, in 2008, and this is unusual, and it shows the change from Britain being a, a, a country that on, on net buys foreign companies to one where on net uh, sells companies to foreign interests. And uh, finally here we have the plan. plan is by the end of 2024, so this is very immediate, GB Savings 1 will exist. By 2025, all the local authorities' pension funds will go into GB Savings 2. By the end of 26, everything else will go into GB 3 and 4. Uh, by the end of 20, uh, 26, also uh, uh, DC funds will go into uh, uh, GB Savings 5, and then there'll be a public sector funds will go into GB Savings 6. So you'll end up having six massive investment vehicles, and th that will control all investment into, out of, around about the UK. So it's a huge concentration of power in six chief executives, six boards, um, with a very, very close relationship, not only to government, but to tax-exempt foundations like uh, Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. How does that strike you, gentlemen? Uh, I'm extremely excited about it. Let's, uh, let's bring it on, because as soon as uh, people start to recognise uh, that that's the reality of the situation, that's the kind of thing that motivates people. So, uh, so let's uh, let's get moving with it. Uh, let uh, Mark. Let's end now with uh, World Health Organization uh, and the latest on the Pandemic Preparedness Treaty. Things are moving quickly, there, gentlemen. This is the Bureau's text of the WHO Convention Agreement or other international instrument. Always avoiding that word treaty on pandemic preparedness, prevention, response the WHO Comprehensive Agreement Plus, as it's known. Uh, they resumed the fifth meeting and drafting group of the International Intergovernmental Negotiating Body. That's the body that's working out this treaty uh, to draft and negotiate this thing. And it's dated the 2nd of June, 2023. Again, they're, they're shooting for May of next year, approximately, to wrap this thing up. But we have to keep a very close eye on it. Now, we can move past this one. Let's go to the next one. Uh, the One Health thing, uh, about which I have an article posted on the UK Column website right now in my in my file, uh, that is an option now uh, under under number eight here, uh, plank number eight in this 43-page uh, document at this point in time. One Health, uh, where human beings and animals are uh, animal life and the overall flora and fauna of the earth are all looked at in the same context. They're saying that, well, we'll probably go with that, but then um, another option B, uh, 8A, option 8A is to go with One Health, option 8B is to not include that as a principle. So there's various parts of this uh, evolving agreement or treaty, whatever you want to call it, where they have options under different headings. So this is an unedited version that they've actually made visible, uh, made available and James Roguski, the Los Angeles-based researcher who's really been uh, putting both feet into this thing, he um, made sure to get this out so people could see how this thing is evolving. Um, moving along here, we've got a couple of videos. Uh, are we going to have time for the videos? Yes, if we get there quickly, yes. Yeah, um, I, I won't say much except the, on this part. Let's look at this slide real briefly. Um, under Article 36, it says the WHO 
Comprehensive Agreement Plus, this, this instrument, shall be subject to ratification, acceptance, approval, or accession by states and to formal confirmation or accession by regional economic integration organizations. And as it mentions under number two, under Article 36 there, any regional economic integration organization that becomes a party to this thing without any of its member states being a party shall be bound by all the obligations under the WHOCA plus. So economic regional integration organizations, which are unspecified here, are being given the same weight, it appears, as nation states. That's something very notable in this evolving instrument. With that, I think it'd be most informative and expeditious to look at the video clips that I provided from James Roguski. Right. So, so what is the first one, Mark? Um, uh, the first video clip? Yes. Well, it, it, it just gets into some very cogent analysis of it, and it talks about this provisional application um, that uh, would be the next slide up if you were to show it. And uh, that's under Article 38, the provisional application. It gets into that. And then um, the second video. Yeah, well, let's, gets look at the into, first, let's look at the first one first. So let's play this. Yeah. On May 22nd, 2023, the drafting group of the Intergovernmental Negotiating Body to draft and negotiate a WHO convention, agreement, or other international instrument on pandemic prevention, preparedness, and response released an unedited draft called the Bureau's Text of the WHO CA+. The good news is, it seems like the WHO has finally revealed its true plan. The bad news is that it is absolutely dystopian in its scope and in its cleverness. The proposed treaty could be provisionally adopted by each of the nations who would become a party to the document. The conference of the party would set up an absolutely independent bureaucracy that would be beyond parliamentary or congressional control. This transfer of power from we the people to an unelected, unaccountable, and largely unknown and invisible members of the so-called conference of the parties is a very well-disguised but direct attack on the sovereignty of nations. This bureaucratic conference of the parties would also include representatives of the United Nations and their specialized and related agencies, as well as representatives of any body or organization, governmental or non-governmental, private sector or public sector, that could apply to be a member of the Conference of Parties. And the work of the Conference of Parties would be carried out by three committees and a panel of experts to provide scientific advice and would be empowered to add protocols to the agreement far away from the prying eyes of the public with no ability whatsoever to reject them. The agreement would set up a universal health preparedness review. It calls for the scheduling of tabletop simulation exercises, and it would trigger a massive expansion of the pharmaceutical hospital emergency industrial complex that would rain down money upon a brand new industry based on the false belief that pathogens with pandemic potential found in wet markets, farms, wastewater treatment plants, veterinarians' offices, 
And yes, even your companion animals would be wrongly represented as the source of zoonotic transfer that could lead to the fear-mongering that we have seen over the past four years. Yeah, pretty hard-hitting stuff there. Uh, the conference of the parties being perhaps the most notable thing and the different different uh, new structures that would be created and the power transfer that apparently could happen. So much to, uh, much to discuss there, much to think about. And of course, viewers are encouraged to contact UK Column, contact me through the column if they want some uh, information on how to get involved. And James Rogowski's Substack uh, column has lots of information on how to get involved. His last name is spelled R-O-G-U-S-K-I. But there's another segment that gets into some other other matters of how this thing would actually operate with teams going around the world, taking pathogen readings and doing research throughout the country or throughout the world, rather. Uh, we might want to look at that now. Teams of workers would be scouring the landscape to find samples of so-called pathogens that could be sent to newly developed laboratories in developing nations that are part of the WHO Coordinated Laboratory Network so that genetic sequences could be compiled and collected at the WHO Biolab in Switzerland along with the pathogens. The danger of these pathogens would only be exceeded by the purported benefit that could be gained from them, both financial and non-financial. And the knowledge that might be gained by manipulating these genetic sequences would be turned over to manufacturers in developing nations under new intellectual property transfer guidelines. And the products produced by these manufacturing facilities as a benefit of this research would enter into the WHO logistics network, 10% of which would have to be donated and an additional 10% would be given at an affordable cost to the WHO. The WHO Convention Agreement Plus would be enforced during pandemics and inter-pandemic times. Upon the declaration of a public health emergency of international concern, the Director General of the World Health Organization would be authorized under the proposed Amendment 13A to the International Health Regulations to set up an allocation mechanism and would be given the sole discretion to determine the required pandemic response products that would then be manufactured by country A and given to country B and distributed under the guise of community health services. This is not a plan to improve the health of people. This is a venture capital prospectus seeking contractors to implement the infrastructure of a dystopian world that was scheduled to be in place in 1984. Um, I would just add that I disagree a little bit with that last statement. You can still have this business prospectus and still have a treaty. I don't think it negates it being if nations sign on to it. So there's some command involved there. I think it's both. Uh, but, but the mention is that our, under R7, it notes the implementation of the WHO CA plus shall be by the director of the UN and the constitutional health organization and this instrument and other relevant international instruments, including the International Health 
operations, the IHR, we, we talked about that, which might have more teeth than this uh, treaty itself, should be interpreted so as to be complementary and compatible. So under the Charter of the UN, the Constitution, Constitution of the WHO, it really is a treaty. It's just a very business-friendly treaty in the way that James Roguski described it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, certainly it's something for viewers to get involved in uh, immediately to head this thing off at the pass before next year, next year, May, when they think they're going to wrap this up. Okay. Well, thank you very much for that. And, of course, the MHRA, the regulator, here in UK is very much bound up in this because it regards itself as the global regulator, but more on that in uh, forthcoming UK column news editions. So I'll say to our audience, thank you very much for joining us wherever you are in the world. Thank you very much to uh, all of you who are sending us information and doing research. It's really wonderful. And a little bit of a, a plea for anybody who's not signed up and donating to the UK column uh, as a member, perhaps you would consider doing that uh, because with that in extra income, we would like to continue to expand. We better leave it there. Thank you all very much for joining us. Thank you, David. Thank you, Mark. And if you remember, we'll be back for extra time in just a few minutes. Join us then. Bye-bye.